Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Binge Sesh, a new podcast from the Los Angeles Times. They're talking about Winning Time, the HBO special series, and awesome at that, and just renewed for a second season, about the Magic Era, Magic Johnson Era, that is, Lakers. The Los Angeles Lakers in all their glory. You want to hear the real story? Well, join LA Times TV editor Matt Brennan and professional basketball player Kareem Maddox, and you'll hear from actors, TV writers, professors, experts from the Times themselves, people who were there, and the real story behind winning time and the Lakers of the Magic Johnson era. Listen to it now. It's Binge Sesh, S-E-S-H, wherever you get podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get them. Give a listen now. And now, here's our show coming up. Tucked away in the northeast corner of the U.S., there is a small town where tomorrow never comes. A quiet place with a majestic hall, a brick-and-mortar temple to the American game. Here... The warm glow of bygone days are collected and safeguarded for all time. Artifacts of greatness. Legendary tools of a beloved trade. But whenever the present turns its eyes to the past, the most coveted treasures are the heroes. The magnificent Yankee, number seven, Mickey Mantle. The greatest hitter that ever lived. They throw in where I'm swinging and I'll be swinging. Might mean the old boggy. Icons of our prized pastime, whose lives on and off the field have the power to change us forever. Well, now here's Robinson coming into the picture. You see, the first colored fellow that ever came in, belatedly. Thank you very much, Mr. Ricky. I'm certainly delighted with my contract. Strength with class. Determination wrapped in hope. Within these walls, you will find the pride of a nation. Today, today. I consider, I consider myself, myself the luckiest, the luckiest man, man on the face, on the of, the face earth. of the earth. Our desire to overcome is personified here. And every now and then, hammered home. He's sitting on 714. It's gone! There's a new home run champion of all time! Our story lies within these walls. Triumphs of spirit alongside losses we'll never forget. But even the past is an ever-changing place. And once a year, cherished heroes welcome new ones to these hallowed halls. As we select these boys of summer to become men for all time. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon, as you probably know by now. And this, of course, is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast. Not so little anymore. 
that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. Uh, always a pleasure to have you uh, in your earbuds and, and however else you uh, ingest our, our weekly episodes. And yes, we do this every week. Uh, we try to uh, deliver uh, fun, interesting stories, conversations around uh, various aspects of the uh, sort of past sports uh, history landscape uh, on the pro level uh, and uh, with a specialty and an obsession, perhaps unhe- unhealthily, uh, around things that are defunct and no longer with us, uh, previously domiciled and all that kind of stuff. Uh, where did they go? Why did they go away? Uh, why were they there in the first place? All that kind of stuff. Uh, and this week is uh, no exception. Uh, we are ensconced this week, as you heard from um, uh, Tom Brokaw's uh, uh, voiceover there, uh, the world's uh, probably most preeminent sports uh, nostalgia locus. And that's, of course, the Baseball Hall of Fame in uh, beautiful Cooperstown, New York. Uh, and that's sort of where our story is centered around today as we get into a conversation about uh, one of those members of that hallowed hall. Um, his name was Dave Bancroft. Now, you could be forgiven for not knowing who Dave Bancroft was. Uh, but he is a member uh, of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, and um, it's um, well, we'll get into our conversation. So so why Dave Bancroft? Why do we focus on it? Well, first, now for us, uh, the adjunct is uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, this is a guy who played uh, in the uh, mid 19 teens uh, all the way through 1930, was a manager uh, of the Boston Braves uh, before they have obviously moved in their journey to Milwaukee and then Atlanta. The Braves, I think he managed from 24 to 27. Uh, as a player, he played for the New York uh, Baseball Giants, right? Obviously, before they moved to San Francisco, long before they moved to San Francisco. Uh, the Boston Braves, he was a player as well. The, Bo- the Brooklyn Robins, who are, well, I'll let you figure out where they are today, but they're, uh, uh, the uh, team still exists, let's put it that way. Um, also, uh, a lot of uh, managerial and uh, playing time in the minors, uh, he even, Dave Bancroft, did uh, was uh, managed uh, on the professional level in, in particular, and interestingly, uh, for two teams in the All-American Girls Base, uh, Professional Baseball League, the AAGPBL, uh, the easy acronym to remember and pronounce, uh, the Chicago Colleens in 1948, the South Bend uh, Blue Sox in 49 and 50. Um, but, I, you know, a controversial choice uh, and... I, well, I'll, I'll set it up with uh, a clip from uh, Bill Kovach, who is the uh, uh, chief uh, uh, cook and bottle washer of this uh, really amazing uh, YouTube site and, and uh, et cetera, called Philadelphia Baseball History. I'll let Bill sort of uh, give you the, the hint of the uh, former Phillies player, Dave Bancroft, and, and why he was uh, sort of brought into the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. This brings us to 1971, where we had the induction of shortstop Dave Bancroft. Bancroft spent six years with the Phillies, including the 1915 NL pennant winning season. Now, Bancroft is something of a controversial inductee. Quite frankly, he was a mediocre shortstop at best. With the Phillies, he batted 251, and his lifetime batting average was 279. But Bancroft demonstrates the Hall of Fame bias for New York players. Bancroft spent five years with the New York Giants. During that time, he had a batting average of 310, and it's his playing time with the Giants that fueled his Hall of Fame induction. All right, so Bill Kovach sets it up very well, and thank you for doing so, uh, sir. Um, Tom Alicia is our guest this week. He is the author of the brand new, 
uh, well-written, very concise, but very straightforward and chock full of data and, uh, uh, and information and quotage uh, about the life and times of baseball Hall of Famer Dave Bancroft. It's called Beauty at Short. Dave Bancroft, the most unlikely Hall of Famer and his wild times in baseball's first century. And let's put it this way. Um, the very first sentence in the book uh, is kind of the dynamic of our conversation this week. And that quote is, Dave Bancroft should not be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Okay. However, the chapter is called Why Dave Bancroft Matters. And we'll get into why Dave is in the Hall of Fame, uh, inducted in 1971, uh, perhaps also getting more into some of the other players who by themselves, individually, sort of in a vacuum, might be questionable related to, say, some of the other all-time greats that are in the Hall. But as you sort of uh, take away the blinders and kind of put them, these players, and in, in Dave's case, obviously managers and uh, and all the other sort of administration kinds of things that one might do in baseball, um, sort of get a sense that in context, uh, these uh, inductees actually have some very solid creds in toto. Now, uh, we can debate it for sure, and we'll we'll talk about sort of why uh, Dave Bancroft deserves to be in the Hall of Fame and arguably maybe why not. Um, and that's why you should listen to this conversation. And and a reminder, you know, why we focus on, say, this conversation, because Bancroft was part of the New York baseball giants, right? They're no longer with us. They're in San Francisco now. The Boston Braves, which have been twice relocated and now live in Atlanta and one of the oldest franchises in, in baseball history. Uh, Dave was part of the Brooklyn Robins in 28 and 29. And I'll let you sort of search up as to find out where that iteration of that team now lives. And yes, hint, they're still around and pretty successful franchise, by the way. And he managed the Boston Braves. And and again, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, the manager of, of two teams in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, right? So uh, check the box for our little uh, investigative uh, uh, interest, right? Because we're talking about teams that no longer exist. But one of those teams is perhaps the most solid, uh, I guess, explanation as to why Dave Bancroft and others like him, perhaps, uh, are, is uh, and or are in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was part of some very successful New York baseball giants teams uh, in the early 20s. John McGraw, the legendary manager of such. Um, and uh, there are a lot of players that went on to great distinction that remember playing alongside Dave Bancroft. And when it came to Hall of Fame time in the late 60s, early 70s, as some of those uh, participants were active in the process of selecting players. Well, guess what? Dave Bancroft was um, not only remembered, but uh, had a, a bunch of uh, folks who collectively remembered and said, hey, why not this guy? Um, so uh, it's a very intriguing story on a number of different levels. Uh, it's a little bit about why Dave Bancroft, but also generally why some uh, types of players uh, and managers are ensconced uh, in the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. And, and clearly, the Hall of Fame is always going to be a controversial and debatable uh, thing. And maybe that's part of its beauty, uh, as uh, as Tom Brokaw kind of sort of sets up. It's uh, it's it's classic. It's uh, iconic. Uh, it, it is the, uh, I guess, the, uh, the standard by which all sort of uh, sports halls of fames 
are, are, are met by. And uh, it is certainly not without uh, a controversy, discussion, spirited debate and all that stuff. So all of that wrapped up into one tasty podcast episode this week for you with our guest this week, Tom Alicia, talking about the uh, life and times of, of Dave Bancroft and uh, beauty at short uh Tom's book about said topic. It's uh, this is a fun conversation, very interesting. You will enjoy it coming up in moments time. Our sponsor, let's see, let's spin the wheel. Uh, you can't hear the clicking of the uh, spinning wheel, but there it is, and it's landing on old school shirts. Oldschoolshirts.com. Uh, our pals at um, uh, Old School Shirts, a longtime sponsor of the show. Uh, Oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code for you there is Good Seats. For ten percent off all of your purchases, and if you haven't gone there, uh, you, uh, you really should go out of your way to do so. So, of course, OldSchoolShirts.com has plenty of great logoed T-shirts of high quality uh, fashion and form uh, from all kinds of leagues uh, and teams of the past. Whether that be the ABA or the All America Football Conference or uh, the World Football League or the USFL previous version, uh, etc. But uh, once you scratch the, uh, beyond that surface, uh, you can find, and again, wherever you grew up in the East here United States, or perhaps maybe if you visited and now live abroad, if you want shirts that lovingly remember with the official and great logo uh, treatments of amusement parks or uh, candy stores or uh, dead malls, uh, or perhaps your local early television days horror tele- horror movie hosts, um, ice cream shops and nightclubs or radio stations of the past, perhaps even stadiums, um, TV shows, uh, world's fairs, all that kind of stuff from the realm of nostalgia beyond sports, but also including of can be found. And again, they're adding more shirts all the time. You can search them up by uh, city uh, location that you might have lived in or currently live in. Uh, you can do it by league or potential um, sport. Uh, you can search them up by uh, genre. So if you're really interested in um, uh, restaurants of the past uh, or uh, nightclubs or or the music scene in your local uh, uh, places, check them out because you're going to find, I guarantee you're going to find a shirt that really will spark your memory about something that you perhaps long forgot or didn't think other people remembered. Uh, and that's the beauty of OldSchoolShirts.com. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Uh, proverbially and literally, you will be glad you did. All right, let's uh, get into uh, a, uh, a a very interesting and intriguing discussion uh, about baseball, the Hall of Fame, Dave Bancroft, and all of that stuff. Uh, I learned a lot, uh, as I tend to in these kinds of conversations. Here's our conversation with uh, our new pal, Tom Alicia. Here it is. Uh, please, as always, enjoy. When I, you know, stumbled across your book uh, and the subject at hand and and seeing um, Dave Bancroft's uh, uh, career traversing Lots of teams that sort of qualify. So, uh, you know, we, yes. we it becomes an easy uh, adjunct for us to, to be interested when we talk about the Boston Braves and the Boston, uh, the Brooklyn Robins uh, and a couple of teams in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, et cetera. And so th- that to us is just intriguing enough to have this conversation. But before we get into it, um, maybe a little background on you 
and how, and you describe it in the book, but how you stumbled across this guy uh, and his story of, of perhaps unwittingly or, or uh, surprisingly getting into the Hall of Fame, which I think most people don't realize and probably haven't heard of before. Yeah, my wife, my son and I uh, vacation each summer for about a week in far northern Wisconsin. And for people who don't know that part of the country, it is really remote. This is a, a very rural area. But in the corner of it is Superior, Wisconsin, and across the river, uh, right on Lake Superior, is uh, Duluth, Minnesota. We were going to Duluth, Minnesota to do some, a few of the things that are there. And uh, my wife had a book called Roadside Baseball. And one of the things mentioned very briefly in one line is that Hall of Famer Dave Bancroft is buried in Superior, Wisconsin. Now, people who know that area, it's, it's an area that stays cold pretty much until the beginning of June. I mean, it's, it's, it's not exactly a, a baseball hotbed. Uh, that jumped out at me. It's definitely a hockey hotbed, that's for sure. And when we were there, I, I asked them, my son at that time, probably about 12 or 13, and my wife, and I said, can we stop at the cemetery? I, this is just so odd to me. And uh, they said, sure, you know. And uh, we ended up leaving a baseball there at his uh, graveside. I continued then to just be fascinated because I kept reading more and more stories about him on the internet and became fascinated. Uh, and then certain times over the years, I, I'd spend a little more time. And then in the last two and a half, three years, um, absolutely did a, a deep dive uh, where I uh, was looking at every single newspaper article online. Uh, there were three different newspaper uh, sites that I was able to use and found as many stories as I could. And, and the journey was, uh, was wonderful. And it's the finished product is this book. And it really contains some very fun, very interesting uh, stories. Uh, there are some moments that are very light very entertaining. There are other moments that are very serious uh, that came across, you know, I mean, he was, he was in the deep South uh, with a minor league team in 1933 in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, he was uh, toured in Cuba with both uh, major leaguers and women's professional uh, players. Uh, he saw a lot, uh, did a lot. And uh, it's just a great trip. It's really been a, a magnificent uh, journey to get to do it and then to get to tell these stories. So, so what did you know about this guy? You know, you, 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 it's, you're seeing this sort of as a roadside uh, kind of yeah. oddity, perhaps. But, but what did you know of Dave Bancroft before uh, finding his uh, relatively unremarkable grave up there? And you know, what, you know, what, uh, what was going through your mind? I mean, did you even know this was a hall of famer up there? No, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know the name. Um, 
and I'm a pretty good baseball fan, but uh, obviously in whatever, for whatever reason, uh, his name had escaped me. Uh, the fact that I live in the same state that he spent 60 years from 1911 to 19 until his death in 1972 uh, is intriguing too, that I wouldn't have heard it uh, at some point. Uh, but no, you know what? I did not know the name Dave Bancroft and the fact that he was a Hall of Famer was um, pretty mind-blowing. I mean, that that's just it. What was this doing here? Now, previous to this is uh, I've been a, or was a in professional newspaper journalism for 30 years as an entertainment writer uh, so and feature writer. So I did a lot of stories where you had to come up with ideas and, and, and what's the hook. And I got a pretty good sense over that amount of time of, of trying to find stories that would interest readers that to me, the Bancroft story that all I'm able to find is just these quick paragraphs that are in uh, books, uh, Cooperstown books that summarize every single player that's in there. And I'm not finding very much. Uh, I'm finding the, the highlights uh, and then that's fine. But I felt like, wow, there, there's got to be more to the story. Uh, and without a doubt, there was. I mean, but, yeah, I mean, like, so uh, why, why was there such a dearth of information? Because I, I think he's it, even today, he's, he's, it's kind of a, a guy who seems to be overlooked and was not not standing out. I mean, did you did you think that perhaps it was maybe a mistake or 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 was it, it just added to the intrigue that you had to go deeper into the rabbit hole to find out all about this guy? No, you know, I mean, it's I, I think part of the reason is because he's 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 one of the the Frank Frisch Veterans Committee picks. And in 19, I believe in 1969, Frank Frisch uh, joined that Veterans Committee and players who were teammates of his and often described as good friends of his uh, were in the Hall of Fame. And these are a lot of uh, people on the fence in terms of Hall of Fame. Uh, when you see articles now of who should not be in the Hall of Fame, you often see players who are part of this uh, Frank Frisch uh, Veterans Committee over three, four, five years. Uh, a lot of his teammates with the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, Frisch, however, uh, did play with Brancroft and they had some three fantastic years together with the New York Giants, two world championships, three world series. Um, they were great. This was, this, was in the, this was in the late teens, early 20s, right? This was uh, 1920. Uh, 1921, 1922, and 1923. There you go. He was with Frisch. Uh, Frisch, of course, was phenomenal too. I mean, he was, you know, he was a superstar even then. Yeah, but uh, he he wasn't. The, the difference though is he was inducted as a regular inductee way back in 1947, right? And I guess I guess oh, yeah. had been sort of in the conversation here and there, but you're referencing now something like 20 some odd years later when it's a veterans committee thing. So maybe a little bit of, 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 uh, up, uh, background, I guess, uh, about Frisch and, um, 
uh, and that uh, veterans committee. Yeah. Uh, and, and Bancroft, like, well, well, I'm curious about how, how they were playing with each other and then sort of how Frisch gets sort of in that position to somehow then bring in his pal Bancroft uh, when it comes to veterans voting time. Somebody was, uh, you know, he was uh, Frisch had friends who were part of the hall of fame committee. Uh, they were more than welcome. He was eager to join that committee. There's no doubt about it. Uh, he also, there's no doubt he, he did take advantage as the director of that committee. And that committee, we're talking about 10 to 12 people. He definitely did bring in a, a good handful of his teammates. Now, the one difference about Bancroft and the reason why he didn't get in even earlier, maybe a year earlier, two years earlier than he actually did, is what it turns out is Bancroft and Frisch were excellent teammates. But everything I've read, and I've read a lot about Bancroft, is that they were not good friends. Um, they were good teammates. They were outstanding teammates, but they were not close friends. And that's one of the things that's unfair about Bancroft in particular being in the Hall of Fame is he's often being mentioned as, well, he's in the Hall of Fame because he's one of Frank Frisch's pals. And the truth is, is no, they weren't really, they weren't close at all. They didn't stay in contact years later. I found nothing. In fact, I found one article from a New York paper that literally did describe them as very good teammates. And this is from, this is a newspaper article from probably 90 years ago, but it said that they were good teammates, but not good friends. Frisch still, on the other hand, had to appreciate Bancroft and what he did during those years. I mean, they, they won championships that definitely helped launch uh, Frisch's uh, career. He was very well paid. Uh, Bancroft helped that team. Without Bancroft, it's very unlikely that the Giants would have won two world championships. Very well, unlikely. I, I want to get into I want to get into Bancroft's story in a second for sure, yeah. right? Because that's ostensibly what we're talking, but. Uh, it, you're sort of uh, scratching at this itch, which which you do uh, get into in the book uh, on on the selection process. Uh, ultimately, uh, quite near the end of of Bancroft's life, but uh, between Frisch and Bill Terry, it seems like these are two guys. And this is a relatively new thing to me. So you saberheads out there, you can stop yelling at your <laughs> devices, right? As I as I come to some realization here, but it, it's pretty clear, and my understanding is that uh, there is a a belief amongst the Hall of Fame watchers set that uh, Messrs. Terry and Frisch, uh, both Hall of Famers uh, each, uh, were pretty influential around their time on the Veterans Committee uh, and, and arguably uh, maybe squinted really hard on some of the, the folks that they were uh, able to bring in uh, via their votes in the, in the Veterans Committee to the point of where maybe people feel like there were some compromises made, or maybe they, you know, were not necessarily as worthy as some of the other hallowed members. Now, I know it's a loaded statement, but. No, without a doubt. No, no, I mean, it's a true statement, though. It really is. Uh, Frisch definitely did bring along some of the St. Louis Cardinal players that 
probably do not belong in the Hall of Fame. Uh, at the same time, when you look at Bancroft alone, Frisch isn't going to push as hard as I think he did the others. And then you start to look at, okay, what happened on January 31st, 1971, in a private meeting in New York, where Frisch is, yes, he is running the meeting, but there are 11 other members of that committee. And how did that vote go down? And all we can do is just guess at it because that is, you know, it's a private meeting. But at the same time, what had happened the year before was two new members came in. One was Bill Terry, who did play with Bancroft briefly. Bancroft was mostly an assistant coach at the time uh, that Bill Terry was with the New York Giants. Uh, Wade Hoyt came in. Uh, Wade Hoyt uh, pitched three magnificent games in the World Series in 1921. Uh, boy, he sure remembers Bancroft because the final game of that one, uh, Wade Hoyt pitched, uh, you know, a complete game uh, and the Giants won and beat the Yankees one to nothing. Wade Hoyt was the pitcher for the Yankees in that game. The one run was scored by Bancroft on an air in the first inning. At the same time, Wade Hoyt would know Bancroft's story, would know what a good shortstop he was. Other members of the uh, committee, it, it included uh, Charlie Gehringer. Um, you go down uh, the line and the sports writers were even important at that time. There were four sports writers uh, that were on that committee. One of them definitely was a close friend of Bancroft's and that was Dan Daniel of uh, a number of New York papers and a very influential person himself. He was a, a, a Bancroft supporter for a number of years. We're talking over the decades that this gentleman wrote. That started to, you start to have almost the perfect storm for Bancroft to get in. And it wasn't just whether Frisch was pushing. Also that year, it's really interesting in 1971, early win and uh, Yogi Berra, Two people who absolutely should have been first ballot uh, picks by the baseball writers of America. Neither one of them got in. Nobody got in that year through the baseball writers of America. Now along a few days later comes the Veterans Committee and they open the door to seven players. That is a lot of players to open the door to at that time. One of them was Bancroft. Uh, did he belong there? Uh, I can argue and discuss that as a whole show. <laughs> and, 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 and yeah, I do believe that, that he did. I, I believe that what he did, when you look at the, the entire of his career, uh, the width of his career, the, the, the groundbreaking that he did as a, as a shortstop, that it was legitimate. Uh, but it is a fascinating uh, topic of, of people, and they're, they're, they're very quick to go to uh, the statistics, and I understand that. that, that that's true. Bancroft's uh, career batting average is 279. Uh, several years were in the dead ball era, uh, you know, so you can argue that that, you know, the minute 1920, 1921 comes around, suddenly Bancroft's batting average makes a big jump. So uh, there's a lot of things 
about him uh, that make him a worthy Hall of Famer. Yeah, look, I think, you know, I think on stats alone, right? I mean, you know, he, he, 32 home runs in his career, right? It wasn't as, that wasn't a season. Yeah, and one of the great things about that is uh, most of those weren't over the fence. Right, sure. Uh, they, at that time, uh, a ball that bounced over the fence was a home run, not a ground roll double. Uh, you know, he was also certainly in his early years pretty quick, too, because his most homers were when he was – uh, at his youngest age, he had seven in one season. Uh, his speed inside the park home runs, you know, in these in these older, very large uh, stadiums with with very deep outfields, uh, he could zip around those bases and get in there. So no, he, he did not have the power. No, uh, but and I think too, you, you get into the sort of criteria thing, right? Which which I'm sure it, it has been standardized and or formalized, but also has frankly intangibles to it, right? And yes. when when you look at at Bancroft's statistics, right, it, nothing stands out as even as a manager, right? He was a bit, not even barely 400 per, winning percentage, right? But 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 when you look at sort of the uh, the entirety of his let's call it journeyman-esque career in baseball, not just as a player, but and not just as a manager, but also as a manager of, of, of the, the fledgling women's game and some of the other things around. It becomes an interesting, almost, shall I call it, maybe like early baseball history representative figure, if you will, right? Almost sort of like a the common man around, this, uh, around the era of the game. I mean, look, this is a guy... You know, and you you go to great detail in the book, right? I mean, who almost walked away from the game? He was almost sort of very self doubting about his his game in in from nineteen oh nine to nineteen fourteen when he was playing in the minor leagues. He didn't think he could hit after a while, and and I guess it was his his field play that people kind of kind of got him still, you know, to say that maybe he had something in the tank left. I mean, this yeah, guy almost walked away from the game before he even became a star. You know, there's a there's a there's a Walter Mitty slash Forrest Gump uh, esque uh, theme to uh, Bancroft's life. Uh, he was five eight, uh, barely 150 pounds uh, when he entered the minor leagues. Uh, he joined the Waterloo Lulus in uh, 1909. Uh, was cut in three weeks with the Lulus, the lowest level of minor league baseball with 300 teams at that time, three more than 300 minor league teams trying to get into the national or American leagues that had a total of 16 teams. A lot of players trying that. And he spent, after being cut by Waterloo, he then uh, went north. Uh, to Duluth, uh, played two uh, series with Duluth, uh, also in a very low, at the lowest minor league at that time in 1909. He was cut by Duluth. Fortunately for him, the probably one of the key moments in his career, uh, the Superior Wisconsin baseball minor league team's manager was watching the game, saw his fielding and picked him up. And for the next three years uh, from age or 18, 19 and 20, he played for uh, the superior team. And again, the lowest level 
of minor leagues at that time. I mean, he was miles from the major leagues and, and then broke through. Um, it is an amazing story. Now, the story you mentioned uh, about 1914, uh, after three seasons in Superior, he then joined the Pacific Coast League, and that is a key uh, break for him. Uh, the Pacific Coast League at that time in the early 1910s uh, was a very good caliber of baseball. Double A, I guess it was called that back then. I don't know if that's the top tier back then or if that was still a double A as we know. Yeah, they were, you know, you get the certainly Pacific League, Pacific Coast League players were were ones that major league teams kept an eye on. But here's what happened with Bancroft when he joins the Portland Beavers, uh, one of the established teams of the Pacific Coast League. He plays one full season with them. And the second season, uh, the owners decide they're going to add a second team, a lower team, play in a lower division of minor league baseball called the Portland Colts. And they took Bancroft and put him on their their second team, their lower team, basically the B team of, of Portland and minor league baseball in Portland, Oregon. That is just amazing that he, he, so, and at that time, even before that, he had said that I'm going to walk away. And he did. There is, there are articles from Portland that describe how he had packed his bag and headed towards the train station and happened to be stopped by two players. And they said, where you, what's going on? What are you doing? You know? And he said, I can't hit. And they said, get back. Come on, come back with us. And they worked with them. Um, there are two, he then from there now, did things just snap into place with their help? No, there were two players in particular from that Portland team that helped them. Uh, one has the greatest nickname, I think, uh, that there is in baseball. His nickname is Raw Meat. Uh, it's Raw Meat Bill Rogers was one of them. The other is Art Kruger. Two of them, veteran players on this team, and they took him under the, their wing. They encouraged him to become a turnaround batter. And at that time, that's a switch hitter. And as a result, Bancroft, through his career, was a switch hitter. Uh, very helpful to obviously to his career as it continued on. Uh, not easy to do though, right off the bat. Uh, it's something that took a, quite a long time for him to, to get into and to finally start to hit that way. Uh, with their support, you know, slowly but surely, he started to hit more and more, uh, enough to get the attention of scouts enough to get the attention of the longtime manager. And actually he was also part of the ownership of the team uh, in Portland. And so in this, he had in his sixth year of minor league baseball, he finally had broken through to where, when you look at the Pacific coast leagues, you know, first and second team all-stars at the end of the year, suddenly there he is, second team 
Pacific Coast League. And after that, uh, just about every major league team passed on them uh, except one, and that was the Philadelphia Phillies. Well, what was it? What did the Phillies see in him? Uh, his manager, uh, I think you quote in in the book, uh, was not in Portland. No. Was not sort of expecting him to uh, to be no, there. No, the, and the managers. Uh, you know, one of the things is, is uh, Bancroft over the years has always looked back. At the manager's name uh, for the Philadelphia Phillies was Pat Moran, and uh, he always credits him as being his uh, his first real coach. And I, I found that very telling uh, because he played for some pretty good coaches before that. But you get the feeling that uh, Moran knew what to do, knew how to, to mold a player. And that's definitely what happened with Bancroft because let's first talk about what happened the first time that he saw him. Now we're going to 1915 spring training for the Philadelphia Phillies. They are terrible. Uh, they, they've struggled for many years. Uh, Pat Moran is a 39-year-old former player. He looks at Bancroft and he says, you look more like a jockey than a baseball player. And uh, a few weeks later, after seeing him play shortstop, he, he changed his mind. He, he came around and realized what Bancroft could do. And he worked a lot with Bancroft in particular on uh, batting and making sure that he could hit. Uh, what happened in that first season, 1915, the Philadelphia Phillies won the National League pennant. They won it and went to the World Series. They lost in the World Series four games to one. That one game that they won, the Phillies won, Bancroft had a sensational game, a base hit and a, a key run. The game winning run, actually. And the Philadelphia Phillies did not win another World Series game until 1980. 1950, they were in the World Series, but they lost four games to nothing. So that 1915 game was pretty important uh, in Philadelphia history. It's part of the reason I'm, I'm a little astonished that Bancroft is in the hall of fame, but, but he is not on the Phillies wall of fame, uh, which is amazing to me. Uh, I feel like it's a, uh, they, they skipped over um, somebody in their past that, that really does belong on that wall of fame because he also, after that first season, which probably would have been a, a rookie of the year kind of, award that he he definitely would have been in the running if not won it the next two years the Phillies were a extremely competitive right down to the last game of the season uh contender for the National League pennant and that's something that the Phillies did not do for years before that and, and definitely for many many years after that um a phenomenal uh, experience that he had there. Yeah, it had to be something. I mean, the fact that his first season, right, with with the Phillies, right, was you know essentially a pennant winning season, right, and then losing into the Red Sox in the, in, in the World Series, right. I mean, so there's a drafting, I guess, effect there. I mean, and he's obviously a pretty solid player. I mean, he's he's he was uh, uh, you know high in the league in walks. I think he was like uh, in the top five for runs scored that year, and 
you know, had a, had a, a, a enough home runs to be sort of in the top 10. I mean, you know, he was hitting from both sides of the plate, right. Which was a fair, relatively yeah, acquired skill. So uh, echoes of a, of a utility player or, or a solid, like go-to guy uh, that can go a long way in a championship season and a, you know, in competitive seasons thereafter. You know, he, he was helped. We got to, uh, for as much as, uh, when you talk about that team and when you talk about that, certainly that era of the Philadelphia Phillies, that 1915, 1916, that success, uh, you know, Bancroft was a huge part of that, but they had, they had, uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander pitching and wow. You know, I, even just looking back at, at getting to, you know, I followed, the entire season, you know, uh, was seeing and, and seeing what uh, uh, Alexander did game after game when he would pitch and he pitched often, uh, just phenomenal. You know, it was one of the fun things about getting to research this. Also, it's interesting to note that uh, Bancroft's first hit in, in the, I believe it was the second or third game with the Phillies, but his first hit was off uh, Christy Mathewson. And the game was Christy Mathewson pitching against uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander. Two guys who eventually in their careers combined probably won almost 800 games. I mean, we're talking two of the greatest pitchers of all time. Bancroft then became very good friends with Christy Mathewson about 10 years later because Christy Mathewson was the president of the Boston Braves, the team that Bancroft eventually was a player manager for. And they worked together for two years. Matthewson died while uh, uh, Bancroft was uh, coaching, was managing and playing for the Boston Braves. And that was something that he got pretty close to uh, Christy Matthewson. And, and that that tore him up. He was also a pallbearer at the uh, the funeral for uh, Matthewson. Uh, these little things where his his closeness to some of these icons is is unbelievable. Uh, just that first World Series, that first World Series was Babe Ruth's first World Series with the Boston Red Sox. When you mentioned earlier, yeah, Boston Red Sox won that World Series uh, over the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, they were, they had a pretty good pitcher, Babe Ruth, who didn't pitch in the World Series, but he did do, he made his first appearance in a World Series with a, uh, as a pinch hitter. So you just kept Bancroft, like I said, it becomes a Walter Mitty slash Flores Gump, however you want. He kept crossing paths with so many people at that time, uh, phenomenal people. And Babe Ruth actually became a, a pretty good friend of, uh, of Bancroft's, uh, mostly because of they, they were uh, both in New York at the time. They both experienced uh, three World Series together. Um, in later years, uh, Ruth often said very nice things to him. And when Babe Ruth in 1926, Babe Ruth to make money in the off season, he did vaudeville shows. Now, Babe Ruth didn't have any other talent. He, other than hitting baseballs, uh, you know, half a mile. But so he did vaudeville shows where he just told baseball stories. And that filled 
theaters and one of the stops he made was in Duluth, Minnesota. And uh, for two days, he did nine shows over two days, 1926. And uh, that morning, the morning before the second day, he his breakfast was with sitting down with Dave Bancroft, who was living in Superior at that time uh, in the off season and uh, enjoying recalling times with him. Uh, it's just magnificent. There's also Bancroft and his wife uh, spent time in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where Ruth was a, a, a frequent visitor. Uh, Bancroft and Babe Ruth uh, also went there in the spring of uh, 1921. At that time, that is where uh, Bancroft took what are described as the most, I hate to say provocative, because that sounds more, uh, not, not quite the word that I'm looking for, but uh, certainly the most outlandish photos of Babe Ruth you're going to see. What it was, was there was a studio where there were a lot of costumes, a lot of you could stick your face through something uh, and look a different way. And it was uh, Babe Ruth's wife. It was uh, Edna Bancroft. It was Dave's wife and uh, Babe Ruth. And there are just the goofiest pictures, ta all taken by Dave, who's not on camera, but he's taking the pictures. And those are just show you a, a little different side of, well, Babe Ruth always had a, a very good goofy side to him, but also uh, kind of the wonderfulness and then good sense of humor that Dave had and also his wife. So, uh, it's, it, you know, so I don't hear anything that seems that strikes me as hall of fame quality yet. Okay. Well, well I think we'll get to some of the aspects of it in a second, mm -hmm. but it does seem to me, and maybe you can sort of maybe talk about his personality and his, uh, you know, his off the field, uh, uh, social ability, um, because, um, I, I get the sense that, um, he's kind of a, probably a, a well-liked guy and he seems to be hobnobbing with the right people. Uh, and perhaps maybe even that's arguably maybe what, how he gets some of the attention besides his solid stats, uh, in going to the New York giants where his career really takes off come 1920. That, there's nothing like that New York media. And whether that's today or whether that's 1921, you really sense that. Um, and again, this is from going through, uh, you know, not just looking at one newspaper. This was looking at what the newspapers were printing nationwide by using his name and seeing what was going on. He was already an established shortstop star who was being compared to Hannes Wagner while he was finishing his four and a half, five years with the uh, Philadelphia Phillies. When he was traded and he was wanted by John McGraw to such a degree that McGraw gave over, I believe it was about $100,000 to the Philadelphia Phillies, John McGraw with the New York Giants, he wanted Bancroft so badly that he gave up that enormous amount of money to get Bancroft in a trade. And he got him. And then what happened 
is Bancroft succeeding, started to hit 321, 319 on World Series championship teams. And wow, the, the fame is just astonishing as to what happened uh, of what comes out of New York and then what comes out of winning World Series is that he was just uh, phenomenal attention was given to him uh, at that time. There was, uh, it was hard to find a newspaper that had not uh, bannered his name. Uh, the New York media became uh, really fueled his fame. Uh, and he deserved it too. You know, those, those World Series teams, he, he was hitting very well. And at the same time, doing phenomenally at shortstop. Uh, doing phenomenally at shortstop exactly like John McGraw wanted. And John McGraw, is, as we know, is, was a hardcore manager. And that played off perfectly with a relentless, uh, I'm going to do anything to get an extra base kind of player. I'm going to think where I'm going to move myself at shortstop because I know that this player is likely to hit somewhere as opposed to station myself somewhere. McGraw loved it. They were extremely close friends uh, in addition to being uh, manager and player. Well, those, those, uh, those McGraw giant games were uh, uh, teams, right? Were, were uh, it was uh, very much sort of the, uh, I guess you call it small ball today, but it was, or the inside game, right? Which is very, sort of dead ball-esque, right? So, so that kind yeah. of scrappy play, right? Very much rewarded and and um, enterprising, I would say, versus, say, power, which is probably more where Babe Ruth and the Yan and the, uh, the, the, the Yankees were sort of- Yeah, and then McGraw, you know, I, I certainly over time, at that time, you know, he might have scoffed at the long ball of, of Babe Ruth, and he did. Uh, you know, let the Yankees hit, you know, a deep. You know we're gonna we're gonna get our runs. We're gonna scratch them out. Uh, Bancroft also, you know, and and one of uh, the books that showed that gave me some insight on Bancroft was actually written by uh, John McGraw's wife uh, in the early fifties. John McGraw had been uh, deceased for about twenty years at that time when she wrote a book called The Real McGraw. And she describes that nights where uh, in the early 20s, where players such as Bancroft gathered at their home and he's never, she, she had never heard John laugh and she, she loved how uh, he got along with, with Dave. She got along with, um, Edna, uh, who is Dave Bancroft's wife, uh, they had a wonderful relationship. And it was really wonderful to see in that book how they had uh, clearly appreciated each other. And they were, they were very good to each other. Uh, that, uh, that kind of relationship uh, definitely also spurred uh, and helped, helped Dave through his career, no doubt.
What's this? Binge sesh. Binge, binge sesh. Hey, all of a sudden, I'm Buddy Hackett. Binge sesh. It's a great podcast. For sure it is. It's the uh, def- uh, brand new podcast from the Los Angeles Times. Again, it's called Binge Sesh. Thank you, buddy. But that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and why should you listen to it? Well, hey, did you listen to our episode with Jeff Perlman back in the day? We talked about the USFL. Well, as you know, Jeff is a uh, prolific sports uh, nonfiction writer and his book, Winning Time, was the impetus and the uh, inspiration for this wildly successful and controversial at that HBO series, Winning Time, about the magic era Showtime Los Angeles Lakers, the team that changed America and the NBA for sure. Uh, and Binge Sesh from the Los Angeles Times uh, is the place to, it's a companion, I would say, uh, to the uh, to the great series. Uh, if you want to really hear the inside story and the real uh, origins and the real uh, people behind the Skyhooks and the Slam Dunks and the Jerry Buss Empire and the uh, LA Forum and uh, all that was going on in that period of time, Magic himself, all the various stars and and uh, ancillary casts of characters. Um, it's about the basketball, but it's about so much more than just that. You'll hear from actors and TV writers, professors, experts from the LA Times, people who were there, and it's a fun romp. And it's hosted, co-hosted actually, by the LA Times' TV editor, Matt Brennan, and professional basketball player, Kareem Maddox. You may remember him from his collegiate days as a star standout at Princeton, and a current member, I think still, of the US uh, national three by three team. Uh, which is now an Olympic sport too. Give it a listen. Again, it's called Binge Sesh, S-E-S-H, Binge Sesh, uh, from the LA Times. You can find it uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a hoot. You'll enjoy it. And um, we appreciate their sponsorship of our show. And now back to it and our conversation. Obviously, the, the New York Giants at that time were you know, constantly in the World Series, winning two of them in 21 and 22. And he's obviously a, a, a solid member of that play. Um, but I, I get the sense he also, and your book sort of more than hints at it, um, he was kind of, it was kind of, a, I guess the Giants were sort of not much too interested in, in having him for too much longer than that. And I, it may be paired with, what I think is sort of an interest in possibly also managing as well. And it seems like he sort of got that opportunity when he went to the Braves or was. That's just where John McGraw comes in and created a deal that was just fantastic for Bancroft at the time. In retrospect, was it the best move for Bancroft? Probably not, but it also made Bancroft a lot of money. What had happened was John McGraw decided that he had, and boy, this also shows you how good of a judge of talent John McGraw was, was that behind Bancroft was Travis Jackson. Travis Jackson also became a Hall of Famer. Travis Jackson then spent a lot of years as shortstop and McGraw wanted him to step in for Bancroft. There's no doubt that he wanted this young Travis Jackson, he saw something in him that he thought would, would boost the team. And that loss in the 1923 World Series kind of got at McGraw, I think. Uh, he created a deal then with the Boston Braves that, and at that time, 
Uh, McGraw made uh, Bancroft the captain of the team. Bancroft was the captain of the Giants. And he learned about it in a exhibition game before the 1921 season. McGraw said, you know, uh, there was an argument on the field about a call. And he turned, McGraw turned to Bancroft and he said, get out there. And Bancroft looked at him like, what? And he said, well, you're the captain of this team. Go out there. And that was the first that Bancroft had heard. He was the captain of the New York Giants. He did not know that before that. And he came in there. So what happened then, you've got the, he trades, uh, which was an extremely good deal for the Boston Braves. He didn't ask for much in return and he gave them a very good, still in his prime player and player manager, which was not exactly rare then, but, but still difficult. Few did it very well. Few were able to do both jobs very well. Bancroft went in definitely very naive about it. Uh, there's no doubt. There's, he had no poker face. So uh, at that time, uh, trades were often done at the winter meetings held in Chicago each year at the Congress Hotel. And Bancroft was known to have the world's worst poker face. If he wanted another player, he'd be so excited about that player that the other team could, you know, ask for a little more. Bancroft didn't, wasn't able to, he wasn't a very good general manager. He was an outstanding uh, tactician. He was an outstanding player, uh, but he was not a great general manager and he certainly was not a good wheeler dealer. Uh, he jumped in then with the, the Boston Braves and, and the Red Sox were, were doing so poorly at that, that time. And the Braves were, were also, but they had at least managed under, under uh, Bancroft to at least move up a little bit up the ranks, you know, have some, some good games, exciting games, uh, you know, key injuries caused some rough seasons uh, for Bancroft. Uh, and then he, uh, you know, eventually, for after four seasons, he was uh, let go from the, the Braves. Uh, but they definitely respected him. Uh, there was a, he had a, a good time with the Boston Braves and, and, and made some wily moves. One of the best was uh, taking an infielder, uh, Bob Smith. He took an infielder and he said, try pitching and the player did and the player Smith went on to, to pitch in the major leagues for the next nine, 10 years. He stopped being an infielder and went to pitching. He had not pitched prior to that. And the unbelievable irony of that decision was Bancroft's last at bat was against this man who he said, I'm going to change from an infielder to, and that was about seven, six, seven years later on Bancroft's last at bat was the, the same pitcher with person who he had switched from infield to pitching. 
There you go. The legend of Bob Smith right there for you. Yes. Um, so I, I and obviously, you know, his, his career sort of wound down as a player. The Brooklyn Robins, one of the sort of more uh, uh, great incarnations of uh, of what uh, became the uh, the Dodgers in, in Los Angeles. But uh, you Los Angeles fans don't know about the Brooklyn Robins for for anything. But, but I, he, I get the sense though, right? So you look at some of the players that he played with, right? So how much of this is um, social magic and, uh, uh, and uh, skills and how much of this is, is reality. I mean, he's pretty much lauded by a bunch of his teammates. I, I think Grover Cleveland Alexander, you mentioned before, one of his teammates in Philadelphia, um, one of his coaches in, in New York, uh, Huey Jennings, they all they all considered him Bancroft one of the, the one of the best shortstops in the game. Now, when what era of all time? That's a that's a tall statement. Um, but it's clear that his teammates thought of him as a as an excellent fielder at least, and maybe because and I'm just I'm projecting now, but maybe because of some of the the high quality uh, play and some of the championships in case of the New York giants um, being a really good shortstop for those teams, maybe had a, an outsized effect perhaps on his overall uh, credentials, so to speak, when the, you know, w- when the consideration set started uh, coming back in the, in the late sixties, early seventies. That's a very good point. And, and people really did respect him. And again, when you look at the, the names, all 12, and you start to think, okay, how did they know about Bancroft? And I'm talking about the Veterans Committee who picked for the Hall of Fame in 1971. And I thought, okay, wow, there's, this is a lot of them who saw him play, who remember it, uh, who would remember this guy, who might take a little look and say, and not be like, well, he only hit 279 and sit back and say, my vote is no. No, I think that they realized that they started to look at, uh, you know, his whole, the whole way he played. Uh, that includes quite a, quite a bit of, uh, of gold glove type seasons uh, at shortstop for a number of years. Uh, they looked at other things too. Uh, he was well-liked. There's no doubt about it. He, he did the European trip with uh, the major leaguers in 1924 uh, that went there. Uh, he went down to Cuba uh, twice, uh, first with uh, uh, the New York Giants and second time with uh, as manager with the uh, professional women's uh, baseball league. Uh, so 1971 comes around and these are the voters at that time, older gentlemen, remembered him without a doubt. And also, it's fun to, one of the things that I just kept seeing in the 1950s and 60s were names that would put together all-time teams. And it ranged from uh, the owner of the Washington team to uh an umpire who would put together players that he remembered. A scout would put together an all best of team. And Bancroft's name was, was constantly on there. 
throughout the 1950s and 60s. But not necessarily it, high up, though. But he was there constantly, at least sort of on everybody's scorecard, almost as like the right. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, as a, as a, was, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's it's, it's a long, you know, 1915. He steps in and right away makes as 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 difficult as his career was in the minor leagues. He stepped in in the major leagues and made an immediate impact. Uh, and then you have the Boston or the Philadelphia years. Then he gets traded to the New York Giants and it, it, it turns into uh, hyperspace in terms of the attention that he gets. And he responds, he really responds well. He's also the captain of that team. And then he becomes a player manager. And even during when that team was struggling, there's a moment in Boston where they stopped and gave him sort of a, a, now I'm forgetting what the item was. And I want to say that it was, it was a ring. It was a watch of some sort, but they wanted, the players wanted to show during the season, their support for Bancroft, obviously knowing that he's doing as much as he can. Then you have two years in Brooklyn and the first year in Brooklyn they sign, uh, or I'm sorry, the second year in Brooklyn, they sign uh, George Wright to play shortstop for them. George Wright shows up at spring training and clearly couldn't throw. His, his arm was shot, and it turns out that it may, whether this story is true or not, it's, it, it's, it was hard to verify but it's possible he may have smacked his hand against the wall during a handball game and injured his, his shoulder. And he was the one who was expected to replace Bancroft. Well, then all of a sudden Brooklyn is stuck and Bancroft had in what was his final full season uh, with the Brooklyn Robins, uh, a very good year, you know, a surprisingly good year. Uh, and almost stuck around, was often mentioned as a replacement for uh, Wilbert Robinson as, as the coach of, of Brooklyn. Uh, he ended up then going back to New York and was an assistant with John McGraw for three seasons. When John McGraw in 1930, 31, and 32, when he ended his career, there were gaps where he was not managing that team that he was away in particular in 1931. Uh, he stepped away. Uh, it's still confusing. Was it illness? Was it just an argument with management? And basically handed over the team, a team that was very good, to Bancroft, who was very successful as a manager. So you could look at Bancroft's record in, in Boston and say, well, nah, he wasn't much of a manager. But then you can take a look at the times that McGraw was not there, which was quite often. And we're talking as many as 20, 25 games at least in one season, 1931, where Bancroft is the manager of that team. Uh, why? Uh, it's almost interesting that McGraw didn't just hand over the reins at that time to him. Uh, 1932, all of a sudden, shocking, McGraw retired in 1932, and he gave it to Bill Terry. Uh, that part of that is management. It was expected that Bancroft would would follow him, but uh, 
ownership was worried a little, I think. Uh, to, I think they wanted a change from McGraw. They had had McGraw there for so many years. And uh, Bill Terry was around. Bill Terry went into the uh, locker room. He was called into the locker room by John McGraw. He was expected to be traded. And John McGraw said, you want to be the manager? I'm going to be retiring. I'm leaving. I'm quitting the team. And that was in June, 1932. Yeah. I mean, look, this is really, I mean, look, if you, if you, if, as the sort of, as you describe sort of the, the fabric of, of, of his story, both on the, on the field and, and frankly, the, 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 the social uh, intelligence, I guess, uh, off the field. I mean, look with, with player slash friends in high places, right. I mean, Grover Cleveland, Alexander hall of famer, Huey Jennings, right? His coach in New York, a former player, a Hall of Famer. Um, clearly, uh, uh, John McGraw, right? Legendary, uh, outsized figure in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, playing in New York for all those years, especially with those championship teams with a megaphone in, in a sports writer like Frank Graham, who was, you know, quite quite a dominant sports writer at the time, right? Frank uh, Graham loved Ben Graham. Exactly. And so, oh, I mean, and- <laughs> I, I, I guess I don't want to undersell this, but I mean, or or maybe overstate it or, or what I, what I, you know, uh, or, or poke holes in it. But let's put it this way. It, it does feel to me that Bancroft had a solid, if not extraordinary career, right? Uh, I, I wouldn't say anybody, you know, on stats alone. Managerial, stats alone, just man, managerially either, right? But get the the endearing quality of those friendships and the lasting nature of them i mean this is also a guy too after his playing career and managerial career was still active in the game right he's he's on these all-timer games and you know he's he's still remembered fondly by his teammates and 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 former managers um maybe before we sort of get to the 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 coup de gras here in, in in when he finally gets into the the hall of fame and maybe that sort of last case for the rationale how does he get into managing the two All American Girl Professional Baseball League uh, he, uh, teams? He uh, he had done some uh, coaching in the minor leagues, uh, and there's no doubt he he never he never stepped away from baseball or wanting to step away from baseball. There's a wonderful story of him and Superior in the late 1930s, early uh, working with. Uh, a player, uh, Morny Arnovich, uh, who became a star uh, for a year before the war took him away from baseball, unfortunately. Uh, and, and they worked together. Uh, Bancroft also coached uh, high minor leagues uh, right after in, in Minneapolis, had a, a player who hit 69 home runs in one season. Uh, he did not veer far from from baseball he it was just in his blood and uh it continued uh there's no doubt he would have loved to have gotten back into the game and had John McGraw lived beyond 1933 I'll bet you he would have been a manager of 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 some team John McGraw definitely wanted to buy a team uh, was no doubt working on it uh, at the time of his death. Uh, he was putting together a syndicate and wanted him back. Uh, Bancroft then, uh, the writing was on the wall. He, he, there were so many times that he was the second pick 
<laughs> you're the, the backup person if so-and-so didn't accept uh, a head coaching job. Uh, as a result, he did spend a lot of years in the minor leagues, and that eventually led to uh, one of his former friends uh, from the, his playing days, Max Carey, who was very much involved with the uh, Professional Women's Baseball League, and said to Bancroft, you know, would you like to manage? And uh, Bancroft jumped at it. And there's, there's, the, there's the image because of, uh, because of the movie and because of Tom Hanks' character uh, in the movie that, you know, that the male managers were, you know, drunken and not, not interested in, in developing these women as players. And Bancroft threw himself into it. He was extremely eager. There is, it, it's, uh, and they responded to him. They called him Pops. Uh, but he, he worked with them very hard. And they, he also managed a tour of Cuba in, boy, this would have been 1949, I believe, uh, spring of 1949. Uh, of uh, Central and Southern America with uh, two teams of mostly American, but also some Cuban women uh, playing baseball over two and a half months. It's, it's just a remarkable tour. Uh, and his dedication to, to making sure that they, uh, you know, played at their, their top quality. He took this seriously too. He was the head coach of the uh, South Bend Blue Sox. And that was one of the, the staple teams uh, along with Rockford and that women's baseball league. And during one game, the Racine Bells, they were playing. And they the Racine Bells uh, had an injured catcher and the catcher that they were using uh, got injured uh, late in the game that they were, the Racine was winning nine, well, by several runs. And uh, they had taken another backup per player who had played catcher and they used her earlier in the game. Well, the game was late and Racine did not have a catcher and the owner, or I'm sorry, the umpire and the manager of Racine went up to Bancroft and said, can we put so-and-so back into the game? We don't have a catcher. And Bancroft said, no way, no, you're not doing that. And uh, as a result, they were trying to put together, uh, find somebody okay on the team who would play catcher. And it was going on so long and the Racine players were, were shouting at the umpire. And what happens? The umpire eventually, because Racine was unable to get a catcher in time, called the game a forfeit in favor of Bancroft. I mean, he was, he was ruthless in no matter what level of baseball he was playing. He was tossed out of many, many games. Uh, very intense manager, maybe too intense for his own good, I think, sometimes. Uh, but at the same time, these players loved him. Uh, the, the women in, uh, who played for him in South Bend on uh, Dave Bancroft night, um, there was one article I ran across that it was just clear that, that they admired him and appreciated 
his dedication to uh, making sure that it was uh, that they were at their best. Uh, yeah, his his start play. his start in the, in the uh, All American uh, Girls Professional League was uh, was a little uh, less than auspicious, right? Because he no, uh, it's not. There was a you know because the Chicago they, Colleen's, I think one of the yes. worst records that year the, in nineteen in yeah. nineteen forty eight, right? That was their only season in Chicago. They then the next season became the league's uh, traveling team. Yeah, uh, no and we, games. We, there was a par- partially a reason. Yeah, there's a reason partially for that. Uh, we our, our previous guest, uh, Adam Chu, uh, uh, regaled us with sort of the, uh, the Chicago essentially was very difficult for that league because they had its own. They had, uh, Chicago had its own interest city essentially league that was playing with um, mm-hmm. with the larger ball without uh, without glove, and um, it, it was its own sort of thing. And they could. It was interesting. While it was a Midwestern dominated league, this All American Girls Professional Baseball League, with national attention attached to it, it could never crack the city of Chicago. And and the Colleen's, I think, were just only added to that uh, that inability. They inched in there, and the only time, boy, they got no publicity and and no fans either. Uh, and uh, one of the only times that they got attention from the Chicago newspapers were when. Bancroft played in an old timers game at Wrigley field. And, uh, he may, I believe it was Rogers Hornsby might've been, uh, with them at that time. Uh, and that there were very few articles that you could find, uh, to understand what he was doing with the Chicago Colleen's at the same time, when that season ended, I think they realized they gave him, a raw deal. They, they, he had to pull players from other teams and uh, he did not have much of a lineup uh, with that team. So at the same time that the next year he becomes manager of one of the, the most established uh, teams uh, in that league. Uh, he, he enjoyed that. And he stayed after that too. You know, one of the things that was wonderful too about that was that uh he responded. There are autographs with notes and that you see where he's so appreciative of uh, people who remembered his career that after that. Uh, amazingly, in 1959, he played in at age 68. He played in the three inning old timers game uh, at Yankee Stadium. It's on national TV. He is in the infield with Jackie Robinson, a retired Jackie Robinson. And this shows you how far baseball had come was that sadly, uh, that was the first time he had a black teammate other than the time he was he was 12 years old in his hometown of Sioux City Iowa and there's a photo of his what would be now his little league team but at that time it was his it was his seventh or eighth grade team and next to him is a black player uh whose name is there and became a professional musician but at that time was a 12 year old teammate of Dave Bancroft's 1903 he then, for 53 years, 56 years, did not have a black teammate at any time 
until a retired Jackie Robinson in 1959 during an all an old timers game at Yankee Stadium. Uh, it's just remarkable. And that's one of the saddest things that I found. He knew it too. You know, Bancroft knew it. He said it. McGraw knew it. Uh, so did his manager in, in Portland. Uh, they knew, uh, uh, teammates of his knew that players in the Negro Leagues, uh, dark-skinned players in Cuba, it didn't matter. Uh he knew they were getting a raw deal. He knew they were talented enough to play in the major leagues and he couldn't do anything about it. Uh, McGraw tried to sign somebody and, and was taken on uh, his Portland manager had somebody in mind and was, was said, no way. Uh, the racism uh, when you do a deep dive, I think on any baseball player, during that time, and it's certainly in the first half century of uh, the 1900s, uh, you're going to see some real deep racism. And, and, and it's sad because he knew it. He knew those players from, from Cuban tours, uh, from seeing exhibitions. Uh, he did see Oscar Charleston play. Um, and there was a player, another shortstop that was called the Ebony Dave Bancroft. Uh, he knew that the talent was there and that it was a, a different league as a result. All right. Well, let's let's make the final case for his inclusion. Then, um, uh, you know, uh, the, it's it's obviously very uh, interesting that this uh, seventy-one Veterans Committee. I mean, I depending on who you talk to uh, the rest that, you know, the, the mid seventies seem to be uh, almost uh, over influenced by the veterans committees uh, to the point where uh, the veterans committee was kind of um, uh, reduced in its influence and its power after that for, 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 for I yeah. guess sort of the cronyism uh, sort of uh, claims and all that kind of stuff. But, but it's clear. I mean, I think like even saber metrics and some of the revision, the revisionist approaches to, you know, quality of, of inclusions in, in the, the hall of fame still actually give Dave Bancroft uh, a hefty dollop of props in terms of uh, his uh, longevity and solidness, if you will, if not for, you know, but no, no, uh, you know, all-star games and none of all those, uh, all those frills, but uh, he still seems to hold up, but there's definitely questions around those years, around those players, um, l- l- let's make that case then. I mean, you've already done it in book form and in this conversation, but, but, but give us a little synopsis of why he should be, why he is indeed worthy of being in the Hall of Fame. You know, first of all, in 1971, when you, uh, when that committee, and I hate to just call it the Frisch committee because there were, there were yeah, many some others. Do. <laughs> some do. And some do. Oh, one, yeah. You know what? You know what? I didn't realize that there were as many as there were. And again, when you look at the list of people, those were people very closely tied to Bancroft, very much knew his, understood his career, very much admired him. And that included Bancroft, or that included Frisch. But, 
you know, there were others, there were many others. So to just say Frank Frisch, point your finger and say a good friend of his, that that's not correct. Uh, what happened with that group uh, is that I, I felt like they had a sense that they could add more players because the Baseball Writers Association did not pick anyone that year. Zero. Nobody made the grade in terms of in the minds of the sports writers. Uh, and that included Yogi Berra and Early Win. Two were obvious choices that should have gotten in. They did not get in in their first year. That opened the door, I think, in at least the committee's mind that they could add a, a couple more players. And they did. And when you look at the numbers then of the players, and when you look at the careers of these guys, you know, I think Bancroft would have been one of their two or three picks uh, if they had only gone with two or three. Uh, there are other players that made that Hall of Fame in 1971 who were lesser. And now you can also start to split hairs too, because, you know, in 1971, because are there players now who are better than all of the players from that 71 group? Yeah. Uh, interestingly, that 71 group also included Satchel Page. He was not selected by the Veterans Committee. That was a separate uh, committee that was looking into making sure that they started to recognize the Negro League. And uh, so Satchel Page was, was part of that Hall of Fame induction group. But the others who made it, there were many questions over, over each of them. Uh, but Bancroft, in the end, when you, when you look at it, uh, there's a sense of the infielding that he had. Uh, he still holds the record for most chances in a season by a shortstop. It's one of the it, is, it may be the oldest fielding record that is still held uh, going back almost 100 years that, is, that remains today. Uh, you start to look at the number of chances he had, and somebody could say, well, he also had a lot of errors. Well, one of the things was, was he was extremely aggressive. There's no doubt about that, that if there was – He's going to back up somebody. He is going to try to make a play that others might not. Uh, without a doubt, there is a wonderfulness in terms of, of coming through in the clutch of some World Series games uh, and also some phenomenal moments along the way. Uh, he holds the record still for most singles, and that's just singles in a nine inning game. And that was, you know, six of them, six base hits in a row. He's got some really incredible uh, fielding statistics that stay in there. Uh, when you look at it uh, across the board and that's what the hall of fame is about. It, it, it's recognizing those players. And I think that's also part of what, uh, the Veterans Committee's job is. Uh, those gatekeepers at the Baseball Hall of Fame are, are, are tough to get past. And uh, fortunately, he did, because there's no doubt in telling his story, and it, it's, it's, it's in a whole book. And what 
it's not just about his his stardom, but there's no doubt too that yes, his his personality, his relentlessness, his uh, his love of baseball uh, certainly rubbed off on teammates and uh, sports writers. Uh, they spread the word very quickly. And it's really fascinating too. He had a wonderful, wonderful wife of more than 60 years. They got married when he first started in Superior. She was 18. He was 19. Uh, her name is Edna Bancroft. And she said one of the first things she said after he was named to the Hall of Fame, she said it should have happened earlier. And I thought that's 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 a supportive wife. That's and that's a great wife. And she was at a lot of the games. One of the things that was most noted about was that she was a, of the wives of the players. She was extremely involved, extremely knowledgeable of what went on, uh, and also very supportive of her husband. Uh, it's a wonderful story because Dave Bancroft in 1971, he is 80 years old. He's not in the best of health. He was, it was a Sunday night. He was eating chicken dinner with his wife in Superior in a very modest home. And the phone rang and it's a Milwaukee sports writer. And the Milwaukee sports writer told him, it's, I've just learned that you made the Hall of Fame. And that's how Bancroft knew and Bancroft was speechless for a moment and ended it with uh, saying that's the, to the, that's the greatest news I've ever heard. Uh, it was a wonderful moment. Uh, his illness did, he had heart problems uh, in those last years. He was unable to attend the induction ceremony in Cooperstown, uh, which is very uh, unfortunate. That would have been a, certainly a wonderful thing. The irony though, is that six years before that, 1965, uh, he visited Cooperstown. And I think in 1965, he thought, I probably belong in here, but I'm never getting in. He never said that. I'm reading between the lines there of a lot of research. And that's why I feel that he thought he never did say that. And then it did happen six years later. And I think that that was, that was a correct decision. All right. Last question. Then I let you promote um, the nickname beauty has, yes. a little, has a little bit of a story to it too, because it wasn't quite his nickname, <laughs> but he was referred to as beauty. And there's even dispute as to where that, that sort of nickname came from. You know, and on the uh, Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame site, and the Baseball Hall of Fame archives are extraordinary. Oh, boy, did I enjoy getting to dig in uh, at that and found a phenomenal amount of, of information. At the same time, on his biography, which isn't very long, in the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame website, they do a pullout banner uh, quote that from a sports writer, the same sports writer who is on that veterans committee in 1971. And it 
quotes him from a 1922 article saying he got the nickname Beauty from saying it while he was in Portland. And the story that I found and the Portland papers covered Bancroft extremely closely that he was never called Beauty in Portland. It, it never started happening until he was in New York. And there's still debate, who knows how it was, whether he, whether somebody threw a good pitch, he would say beauty, whether a play was made in the field that was nicely done, he would say beauty. There's no doubt he said it in some way, shape or form. He was then, it stuck with them, especially in New York. New York used that, New York media. And then when he came back after his time in Boston, you saw the name beauty getting mentioned in New York papers because he was with Brooklyn. It stuck with him over the years and it's almost something that they, uh, it's something that amuses people now that he has that nickname uh, because it wasn't it's used. It so was, it's and it's on his plaque, yes. I think it's, it's a hook. I honestly think that it is something that was unique to him but at the time he was playing was not used as extensively, nearly as extensively as it was after his career that he had the nickname Beauty. They often referred to him as Banny. Now I named the book Beauty at short, so I'm sticking with the fact that, and maybe continuing uh, the, the current way that his nickname was Beauty the entire time of, throughout his career. And yes, he was mentioned as Beauty Bancroft often in New York newspapers uh, during his playing career there. But elsewhere, it was it was Banny. You know, uh, Beauty was not, and he's never quoted. there. I could not find one quote from him talking about that nickname. Uh, others talked about it. And then you hear it, and, and it's a very funny nickname you know, for a, a star baseball player. Beauty is one of them. He was, you know, he's a handsome man, blue eyed. He had, uh, as an older man, he had a great head of uh, nice white hair. He just, you know, uh, so, but beauty, that uh, that just caught on. And I think people now just like to, to use that uh, in a way to associate with them. Uh, and you could see it was definitely used more in his later years. Uh, even people who uh, from the Duluth Superior area, uh, when they recognized uh, him after his Hall of Fame induction, uh, he did make one public appearance and they did describe it as Mr. Beauty. Uh, but you can't, uh, was that something that was said quite often? No. Not, not during, not by teammates uh, during his career. It was mostly something that was used uh, almost as an amusement uh, about him uh, during uh, the later years in the 50s, 60s, 70s, certainly the 70s when he became a, a Hall of Famer. And then the habit on his plaque too is, is quite significant. All right. Well, time to promote because this is uh, this fills in a gap, doesn't it? Uh, you know, there are plenty of Hall of Famers who have uh, books and good stories uh, uh, about them, either in tandem with, uh, you know, others in a genre or in, a, in an era of the game 
Others, you know, have tomes, you know, uh, written, you know, multiple tomes written about them. But I, I think if I'm not mistaken, this is the first book specifically devoted to Dave Bancroft. So you, you're filling in a gap here. And for completists out there in, in baseball uh, uh, Hall of Fame history, I mean, this this fills in uh, a story of one of the members of a very, you know, select group of people to uh, have made that achievement. And um, I, it's int- I, I just found it interesting that you were able to, number one, discover that gap uh, and number two, devote the time to fill it in with with just a, a wonderful story. It's a, it's a it's a it's a fun read. And um, so. and, and frankly, unknown to me. And so I appreciate your tell us about. It. So so t- tell me about tell me who publishes it, the name of it, all that stuff what you're doing to promote it and all that stuff. It's uh, published by Grissom Press out of Chicago, uh, a small publisher, uh, which makes the, the fact that what's happened in the, uh, the first month of its release and the sales and the attention that it's got is just absolutely wonderful. When I look at Amazon.com and it is number two in Kindle behind uh, uh, David Marinus's uh extraordinary Roberto Clemente autobiography from a number of years ago. Uh, I think, wow, that's, uh, it's fun. Uh, that's what it is. It's, it's a fun story. And it's, it's, it, it is a debate. I describe him as the most unlikely Hall of Famer. And I do that in the subhead uh, or in the uh, subtitle because uh he was somebody during for many years before he got to the major league that nobody believed that he would make it even make it in the major leagues. I mean, join a team. I'm not sure about Bancroft, you know, so they, the fact that he had such an extraordinary career makes him a very unlikely hall of famer. Now there are people with worse uh, statistics in the hall of fame, or people that you can point at that aren't as significant as what he accomplished. Uh, at the same time, they they were not as as low. They didn't come from as as low a level as Bancroft did to emerge as he did as a World Series hero. Then and and, and then in, be in multiple cities. Uh, the other part of it. The subtitle is His Wild Times in Baseball's First Century. And it links, this book links, uh, when he was a coach of the Boston uh, Braves, they had a 50th anniversary celebration that included some of the original players from that Boston team 50 years prior. And it extends then from there all the way then to 1971, where he is inducted into the Hall of Fame. And he's inducted into the Hall of Fame as part of a group that included Satchel Page. Along the way, uh, it's unbelievable. There's everybody from Ginger Rogers and Buster Keaton to uh, President Warren G. Harding, who in 1921, Bancroft went to the White House to promote the World Series. Major League Baseball asked him to do it. He did it. He went there. Warren G. Harding said, "Ah, Yankees are going to beat you guys." He goes all the way to White House. Warren G. Harding wouldn't even take a publicity photo with them. They ended up sending the Secretary of State out uh, to take a photo with Bancroft. Well, of course, we know 1922, New York Giants did win the World Series uh, over the New York Yankees. 
so there are wonderful characters. And one of the things that I learned from uh, reading some of my favorite books uh, was follow some of the stories that follow some of the players, uh, you know, from the emotional one. And in this case, uh, a player that he coached uh, was, was at Pearl Harbor and when it was bombed and nobody knew what was going on. And finally, a few months later, they get a postcard that says, I, I'm, I'm fine, I survived. And that was one of his players uh, to the extreme of where, you know, he's golfing with Walter Hagen, where he's uh, constantly, uh, Babe Ruth pops up here and there throughout the book because they, they, they were remaining, they were friends. Uh, there's not, it's hard to find a baseball player. He met the Pope. He met the Pope during uh, one of the European tours of baseball. Uh, he also said something to the King of England in 1924 that kind of shook up royalty a little because they, they told all the players to, you know, obviously be gracious. It was King George V. Uh, and Bancroft is reported to have said by, by uh, John Evers of Tinker's Evers, the chance fame, that Bancroft said, how you doing, King? You know, and, uh, or how the hell are you, King? And, uh, you know, completely, you know, inappropriate for royalty. Although the king, as the story goes, you know, smirked and went on to the next player. But there are so many wonderful stories. I, I kept uh, one of the things, this, this book uh, at one point uh, had a, certainly had, had 10,000 more words. And that's because I just enjoyed keep uh, following different stories that had happened. Um, what happened to other players who were associated with them. Uh, and that's what I really tried to do was also make sure that we follow up with it from also from the player, uh, a player saved his life in 1910. He was a minor league player and they were, they were fishing, they leaned over and they went right into a very large lake in Wisconsin and Bancroft never was able to swim. And his life was saved by a player who held him above water. And, and I, I followed that person's life. And that person had uh, ended up uh, two years later out of baseball because he, he was throwing a curveball and it, it injured his elbow so much that he couldn't pitch. I followed his life. He became a, an Ohio state senator uh, and was ready to run for governor when he ended up having tuberculosis. He survived. And after that, he gave the rest of his life to uh, being a philanthropist. Uh, those are wonderful stories. And uh, that's what I would try to put together in this book. And I really hope people enjoy that uh, half as much as I did. All right, so much in there, uh, lots to further discuss, debate, uh, conjecture about, uh, and your next visit up to Cooperstown to see the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, stop by the plaque of Dave Bancroft and uh, remember this episode and and uh, ask yourself, uh, geez, wow, uh, why uh, is he there? How is he there? And um, 
uh, put it all in context. And uh, uh, again, our thanks to Tom. Uh, the book uh, is called Beauty at Short, Dave Bancroft, the most unlikely Hall of Famer, and his wild times in baseball's first century. It is published by Grissom Press. Uh, it is uh, available wherever fine books are found, both in uh, physical and digital forms. Of course, the easiest way to find uh, said book is uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you will uh, be happy to uh, find every single stinking episode we've ever done and will do on this uh, this beautiful little website that we've created. And if you search up number uh, episode number 261 with Tom Alicia, you will see uh, a convenient link uh, to said book or Kindle copy. Uh, and uh, we'll get a shekel or two of love by uh, you doing so. Uh, and um, we appreciate uh, that. While you're there, uh, you can um, tool around and, and uh, see all the uh, old episodes. You want to share them. You want to stream them there. Of course, the best way, though, to follow our show and have every single episode, um, uh, the moment, the second uh, it is released, is, of course, to subscribe wherever you find great podcasts. Subscribe, follow, whatever whatever the mechanism or the, the function is to uh, be part of our little world. Uh, we publish every very late Sunday nights, early Monday mornings, depending on how the week is going. Um, you can send us email if you like, uh, or perhaps don't like uh, a particular episode or questions. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can follow us on social media. We are kind of tamping down the Facebook and the, the, uh, uh, the Instagram stuff. I mean, uh, you can still follow us there. Perhaps I think we're kind of waning with it, but our main channel of social communication is Twitter and you will find us there at good seats still. Uh, what else uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, You also find a link somewhere embedded there to get on our email weekly news list or weekly email news list, whatever, you know what I mean? Um, and that's just a little head, uh, heads up tip sheet about what we're going to be talking about the, uh, upcoming week. And uh, our pal Jerry Payne, who uh, is uh, chiefly responsible for um, producing all of our various pieces that we give to him. And trust me, we go out of our way to make it difficult for him, but uh, he some, somehow figures out a way uh, to make us sound uh, legit uh, and somewhat listenable. So thank you again, Jerry, for your work this week. Uh, we'll try to be more uh, uh, complicated next week. And uh, thank you, of course, for, for uh, keeping uh, us in your podcast uh, caches. And uh, we appreciate your uh, your cards and letters, as we say. Uh, we'll see you next week with more fun-filled uh, excitement. Thanks for listening, as always. And we uh, love you for doing so. Stay safe, everybody, and take care.